the opening six is amazing. Like it, it opens at a Bauhaus show and Jack and Naomi are looking for attractive people to devour. I said Naomi, motherfucker. You said Jack and Naomi and it's John and Miriam. <laughs> no, I think I'm communing with another plane where the hunger stars uh, Naomi and a Jack rather than a Miriam and a John, uh, which is cool. It's spooky. I'm uh, one of those astral guys. movies at the bar a really fucking scary podcast about bar movies and movie bars here we are it's october my favorite month of the year i hope to have time to watch a, a horror movie uh sometime in the next few weeks but tonight is a very special episode in that it is a companion episode to an existing and beloved episode of Watching Movies at the Bar. But it is also the kickoff for Bethy's impeccably curated lesbian vamptober. Uh, I am your host, Thomas, and joined by me is Bethy, the architect of this amazing series. Bethy, welcome. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Lesbian vamptober, something we all celebrate every year. Welcome. Thomas, welcome, Katie. Hello! To my, uh, coffin. My lair. I'm pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me in. <laughs> so just to give context to the voice you just heard, disembodied, coming out of your car speakers Spookily. or headphones, this is Katie Walsh. Katie Walsh is uh, not only a veteran of this podcast, but a veteran of life, uh, of media, yeah. of writing. Uh, Katie writes for... <laughs> Myriad Publications is the co-host of Miami Nice and is one of my favorite film critics alive. Katie, thanks oh, so much Thomas. for coming back. <laughs> That's so nice of you to say. Um, I will come back anytime to Movies at the Bar. You guys are my faves and I will drink a cocktail and talk about some Tony Scott movie with you any day of the week. Before we before we started recording, Bethy joked that uh, Katie is our Tony Scott correspondent, but it's not... a joke. You are our expert. You are a Tony Scott correspondent. <laughs> we'll have you back as many times as you'll come. Um, but tonight we're talking about the one Tony Scott movie that uh, really makes sense in October and, and beautifully fits the theme of lesbian vamptober, and that's his directorial debut, the oft-misunderstood but incredibly engaging The Hunger. I mean, I feel like this this movie inspired lesbian vamp vamptober, did it not? Or were there some other ones? Bethy? I mean, Lesbian Vamptober has always been a deep abiding passion for Bethy Squires. Uh, okay. is, is this the time to segue into vampire, Bethy's vampire lore corner? Bethy, I, I would love nothing more. Is there going to be a sound cue to kick you off? Oh, gosh. Uh, I guess now that we've said that. Maybe a creaking door that opens to a, a, a different space of knowledge? Mm -hmm. And chains rattling and a bat going ee. <laughs> That's I like the sound of that. Perfect. Um, and maybe a little bit of the da da da. Great. Yeah. Um, so welcome <laughs> to Bethy's Vampire Lore Corner. To just explain my my passion for lesbian vampire movies, I'm a huge fan, especially of. Uh, lesbian vampire movies of like the 70s or like of a European variety or just Franco's anybody in that like giallo adjacent sphere who did a movie with lesbian vampires in it I'm here for it also the hammer horror movies any movie I've said this before on the podcast my favorite genre of movie is one where uh nothing happens sexily <laughs> just like nothing nothing ah tits Nothing, nothing, <laughs> really fake, like just the most opaque, bright red blood you've ever seen in your life. This End movie spits movie. in the face of that criterion. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, uh, some stuff happens sexily. I think there's a, there's a certain amount of nothing happening sexily in this movie. It's like nothing <laughs> happens and then too much happens, then nothing happens. It's, it's very, 
there's like a kink in the plot hose, which I'm not mad about, but it's there. Right. Like they were like, yeah, let's get some tits in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they just like reshot, they just like shot it and like put it in at the end. <laughs> but, um, uh, lesbian vampires have been at the root of the vampire genre since its beginnings in like Western literature. You know, um, the first vampire story is like the vampire, which was done on that freaky, a little vacation that Percy Shelley, Mary Shelley, Lord Byron, and Lord Byron's doctor, Polidori, they all went to hang out at a lake in Italy and just told each other ghost stories. And Polidori told the story called The Vampire, which was about, like, uh, an evil male vampire. But the second, like, most important first vampire story is Carmilla. Carmilla actually predates Dracula by 26 years. It's wow. the story of a, a, a lonely girl named Laura uh, lives with, like, she's the only person her age in her entire castle. There might be servant girls, but, you know, she's the only person her age in this place until this uh, carriage crashes right outside of her door and this woman, the Countess Miracala, shows up. And Miracala is so sick and she can't come out during the daytime and she's always in shade and she's always uh, clasping Laura's hand and saying, you're mine, you're utterly mine, and always like biting her tit and stuff like that. And Laura's like, there's something up with this, but I can't put my finger on what? (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I'm sorry. Is this the plot of The Vampire Lovers? Yes. The Carmilla story has been adapted into The Vampire Lovers and its sequel, Lust for a Vampire, and <laughs> Twins of Evil, I think, is the third in the Carmilla, Miracala, Hammer movies. Okay. Um, it's also been turned into The Moth Diaries. I haven't seen that one. It's also a Carmilla riff. It's fine. Mm-hmm. It's fine. Okay. So, yeah, that's like one of the first vampire stories, and it's gay as all hell. Dracula is also gay as all hell, but that's for the fellas. <laughs> that's for the fellas, yeah. We don't have the time to unpack uh, <laughs> Bram Stoker's special relationship with Oscar Wilde, but there's YouTube videos. Look them up. Ooh, I will. Um, wait, I have a quick question. Where does um, like Madame Bathory figure in all of this? She's not really a vampire, but like that's such an old story, and there's I don't know. Is she part of this at all? Absolutely. I would say that Elizabeth Bathory. And Vlad Tepes uh, are, like, the two weird nobles that sort of were also, like, the foundation of the vampire myth. So you've got Count Dracula, and then you've got Elizabeth Bathory as, like, the two different blood-eating riches of the okay. time. But, like, the the sexual component of Elizabeth Bathory for a long time wasn't gay. It was that she was killing younger women so that she could be a- appealing to men. Right, It was, like, right, the straightest right, right, right. you could be. Well, getting women naked. Yeah. Okay. To harvest their blood to make you younger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm learning so much. <laughs> that's not to say there aren't like lesbian Bathory stories, but it's not, that's like not the overriding vibe. Yeah. Okay. Uh, before we get too far here, I just want to say that I would discourage any of our listeners from uh, killing anybody uh, or drinking <laughs> their blood. Uh, we're speaking purely in the realm of fiction. Yeah, I don't think it worked. Like, she's not still around, so, like, how good of a age-defying makeup could it really be? I mean, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll get into this, but, like, there's got to be some Bathory vibes in in The Hunger. There oh, yeah. are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, it's yeah. interesting. I hadn't, when I was watching it last night, I hadn't quite put that all together, but. Yes. Um, the first vampire, lesbian vampire movie is Dracula's Daughter which came out in 1936 and is kind of boring. Uh, It's about a woman who doesn't want to be a vampire and wants a psychologist to cure her. So that's, you know, not so fun. And then there's like this, that the psychologist like hates his dumb bitch secretary who he winds up marrying at the end. It's, you know, it's really 1930s and it's like ideas about sex. Right. I'm sure very uh, progressive. Yeah. (laughs) Some would say too woke. I will say that wasn't a great pitch. I'm not inclined to watch that movie now. It's fine. You know, if you're a if you're a vamptober completionist, as I am, you you will watch it eventually. But it's not I wouldn't put it above like Shiver of the Vampire or Lust for a Vampire or 
Jesus Christ Vampire Hunter. Any of those, I would. Put I love above these that. titles. I also haven't seen most of these. Bethy is is definitely the scholar here, but The Hunger I had seen first. When we last had Katie on the show, Bethy, you had not yet seen The Hunger. Correct. I saw a double feature of The Hunger and Dracula's Daughter during June for Pride Month at the New Beverly. And you've been buzzing, waiting for Lesbian Vamptober now for several months. Mm -hmm. Ever since, just amassing films, getting the scholarship, reading the the texts. Going to the primary sources. The vampires themselves, yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Interviews. I've been interviewing with the vampires. Scrolls. (laughs) Yeah. I would say trying to interview any of the vampires from The Hunger would be incredibly difficult, uh, except for... The logic of those vampires is totally undercut by the third act climax when they all kind of animate themselves and walk around. But we'll, we'll get there in due time. The only, the last part of uh, Lore Corner is, the, uh, the, the hunger is also inspired by all of these uh, 70s sort of sexploitation vampire movies like Vampiros Lesbos and Shiver of the Vampire and the Hammer lesbian vampire movies, all of which were just softcore porn, but are real fun and you can't get mad at that i'm not thus thus concludes lore corner the coffin closes (laughs) that was so good (laughs) yay i learned a lot thank you bethy i was i really feel educated on the lore for our listeners who are not in the classroom katie and i just uh uncrossed our legs uh stood up from the very cozy rug at the front of the classroom (laughs) and we're returning to our desks ready teacher (laughs) oh captain my captain (laughs) Uh, shit, I forgot my pencils. Uh, all right, so tonight, uh, live from the classroom, we are talking about The Hunger, which is Tony Scott's first movie. Uh, we're not going to go through uh, an exhaustive uh, chronology of Tony Scott's career. We did a pretty good job of that with Top Gun. Uh, but the important context here is that Tony Scott uh, was a very active filmmaker for many years before making The Hunger, but he was shooting commercials, incredibly stylistic commercials, in the UK. Uh, And when he came to the States, at that time, there were huge money opportunities for these commercial filmmakers to come over and like make their mark in Hollywood. And Tony Scott took their money and made this very strange, very horny, very oppressively sad movie that I love and also find kind of frustrating. And I'm really excited to talk about it. Uh, I will add one little vampire lore context to that, that I learned today. Tony Scott was a huge Anne Rice head even then. And when he had his like first meetings with the studios, he said he wanted to adapt the Vampire Chronicles. And they were like, we don't own this movie. Would you would you like to do The Hunger by uh, another person who has a name? Because that's also a novel about a conflicted vampire. And he was like, okay. <laughs> and thus The Hunger was born. Apparently the novel is by someone named Whitley Stryber. Whitley Stryber. I remember that it was fucked up, but I couldn't remember in what like specific way. It was like I was just the, some part of my brain was like, "No, you're not keeping that information. It's too no, weird." No, it's okay. I had the wiki open, so yeah, that's what I warmly refer to as a made-up name. No one, no one gave you that. Uh, Okay, so Katie, uh, anyone who's listened to this podcast or knows who you are knows that you are the authority on Top Gun. Uh, Top Gun (laughs) is Tony Scott's second movie. What is your relationship to The Hunger? So I had, I feel like I'd always heard of it as like a cool movie, you know, great cast, sexy vampire. And um, so the first time I saw it, uh, I will try not to dwell too much in the context and everything, but... I had just moved home. I was having my quarter life crisis. I was like 26. I had just moved home, quit my job. And I, my parents still had Netflix DVDs and I like put all these crazy movies (laughs) on my parents like Netflix DVD queue. So I'm pretty sure I just watched it like in my bedroom at my parents' house and like, I don't even know if I finished it because I was like watching it last night. I was like, I don't remember this part. Um, (laughs) but like so many of the images, stay with you like the opening and i mean this movie is all just imagery and vibes and and mood and um very very attractive people um but i was like oh i forgot about the whole aging part so i guess i guess the uh 
I, I, you know, it was probably 13 years ago that I saw this movie. I completely forgot the plot. So, which leads me to believe I did not finish watching it. I'm sure my parents like walked in and I was like, oh, awkward. <laughs> 26 living at home. <laughs> and my the other funny thing is that like my parents would get these DVDs and it'd be like dog tooth, like Yorgos Lanthimos. And they'd be like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> so that's a story for another day. But, um, yeah, that was the that was the time I saw the hunger. But it, yeah, it was something that had sort of lived in my imagination of like, oh, I knew about it for a long time, but I had never seen it. But that was the first time I saw it. So weird circumstances. <laughs> did you have Netflix DVDs at any point in the mailing service? I did. Yeah. What was the first DVD you got in the mail from Netflix, if you recall? I think it was the Batman Beyond movie. Oh hell yeah! Uh, which is kind of sick still Mm -hmm. that series was very influential for me uh what it influenced i don't know uh (laughs) but it was it was very formative uh what about you bethy uh that would be tenacious d the pick of destiny oh yes that's an extremely netflix dvd I remember thinking that movie was really fun i haven't seen it probably since like 2008 but i liked it when it came out I love Tenacious D content. Yeah, I enjoyed it. I haven't seen it since, but I remember enjoying it and then bailing it away and getting something else after that. (laughs) I mean, the thing about Netflix DVDs is that you would inevitably have some DVD that you had for like three years. Right. And then the queue would get all stopped up and you'd be like, no, I'm really going to watch this Bergman movie. And then you'd never watch it. And then finally, like seven years later, you'd be like, I'm sending it back. Like, I'm sending I'm, I'm sending the Virgin Spring back. I didn't watch it. <laughs> I think that my Netflix DVD plan, like, changed or they took it away or something. Because I still have a sleeve of Gods and Monsters that I haven't watched. Oh, nice. That's also a, an incredibly Netflix DVD movie to have <laughs> for, like, ten years. <laughs> We're like, yeah, I'm just going to pop this on. No, you won't. (laughs) I think the Netflix DVD rental uh, that is maybe most embarrassing and has aged the worst for me is probably Midnight in Paris. I remember (laughs) getting the Netflix DVD, having a good time with that movie, uh, and it it just lives in a very different context now. (laughs) I also am not 10 years younger than I am now anymore. Yeah, it's true about most of us. Not so for the <laughs> vampires in the film. No, no, no. <laughs> they stay the same age. All right, all right, all right. We're going to be putting mechanisms of aging under a, a very critical microscope tonight, because that's what this movie is all about. But, Bethy, you having just watched The Hunger for the first time, what were your gut reactions coming into it as uh, both a fan of lesbians and vampires? I'd heard of The Hunger by Reputation, not just like from when you were telling me to watch it on this podcast, Thomas, but as a Bauhaus fan and as like a David Bowie fan, it I was already aware of it by reputation and I had already seen American Horror Story Hotel, which basically rips The Hunger off left, right and center. Oh, uh, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Elizabeth, uh, not Elizabeth. Uh, well, her name is Elizabeth on the show, but Lady Gaga's character is just... Catherine Deneuve's character again, but she's like a German countess this time instead of a French countess this time. <laughs> totally different. Uh, well, I'm excited to find out where we all land in terms of our opinions on The Hunger because when it came out, critics did not like it. Wait, but Thomas, what was your relationship to the movie? Uh, I saw The Hunger late. I saw Hunger for the first time like a year ago. That was that was one of the movies that was just on my watch list forever. It was like a lesser work from a very recognizable filmmaker. And I just tried to knock as many of those out as I could while I was locked inside. And I had a really good time with The Hunger. But I had a very different experience watching it even that time and most recently. Because the first time I watched it, I think I had like had a few drinks and I was watching it at night. And I think I was appreciating it more on a level of like, the spectacle and the filmmaking and the eroticism, but like the deep despair of the movie didn't quite hit me the first time I watched it. And revisiting it this time, I found it to be like very visceral and upsetting. I think especially yeah. mm-hmm. as, um, shit, what's his name? John, uh, Naomi's John, as John is aging and says, you know, I thought you'd, you said forever. Um, and she explains to him like, you know, like, you are going to be alive forever, but you're going to be aging exponentially in extreme pain in a box in the ground. Uh, and that's 
something very dark if if you really sit and think about it. It's so it's so sad. It is so sad and so tragic and and I really felt that as well last night. And and really disturbing. You know, it doesn't it's not totally like a traditional horror movie, but some of the scenes are really unsettling. I mean, dis- disturbing and and upsetting. And and you're like it's it kind of gets under your skin like that where you're like we're having fun this looks cool Bauhaus Bowie sexy people and then you're like wait I'm really upset now <laughs> yeah for like a movie that um is like very glossy and and gauzy about sex it's very visceral about aging and blood and sort of like the the other animal parts of living it is much yeah. more like looking at blunt face but with sexuality it's still much more at a commercial like in like advertising like remove almost yeah it's an interesting movie to watch in a post old world because i think a <laughs> lot of people yes a lot of people who really connected with old i think there were people who dismissed it out of hand i think there were people who appreciated it for the swing that it was but i do know people who found it to be really powerful and even though Shyamalan's script is is silly and his direction is silly and and the movie is generally just kind of a romp there is a really horrifying idea at its center like that rapid aging and i think that people who are a little bit older watch that movie and uh that resonated with them and and so i i felt that a bit watching old but watching the hunger i was thinking a lot about my own mortality weirdly uh which is not where i thought i was going today well, there's something so cruel. I mean, in old, and I, I almost did my letterbox review of, of this last night. I almost did David Bowie in the house that makes you old, but, um, uh, I decided that would be too, uh, stupid and flip. But, um, there's something so cruel in the fact that she does it, that it's uneven. Like when they're on the old beach, they're all getting older. And so it's like, there's this really tender moment between, Vicky Creeps and Gael Garcia Bernal, where they're kind of at the end of their lives and night on the beach and they're sort of, they stop fighting and they just sit there together to be together. And the tragedy of the hunger is that John is alone in this. And then, and she's just like, bye, here's your coffin. Go with my other lovers (laughs) in the weird room where they all live in the coffins. And I don't want to be too like, glib nitpicky person already but like it's the 80s they could put a tv in there they could just play music <laughs> there's some stuff you could do to make this less of an abject horror uh, just right. like a, more like a <laughs> the the base level of like uh, stimulus just stimulus <laughs> would be she, nice what, she like says to one of the other ones she's like keep it watch out for him like keep them company tonight. I'm like, bitch, how? Let them out of the box. <laughs> yes, prop them up in like chairs. I, I something that I should say is I draw a very hard line watching the movie between everything before Susan Sarandon is taken to the attic and after because I think that it undercuts its own logic and kind of trips over its own feet. And I think if you understand everything that comes before that within the context of the final few minutes, it kind of dumbs it down and takes away some of the darkness and the thematic heft. It, it to me feels like they just didn't really have an ending. Yeah. Like, like mm-hmm. that the, the yeah, script yeah, yeah. was just not in good shape because it, it, it should be bleaker. I, I, I know Bethy, you're joking about like radio, TV, whatever, but like my understanding is that, they're going to continue to age. Their faculties will be diminished completely and they will just be sort of conscious, slow moving in darkness, you know? Um, And like, that's really horrifying. And it's much more horrifying if you don't have the like goofy scene where they all like wake up and like kill Naomi. Oh, for sure. I'm not, um, even, even then though, I would still like a TV to be on because uh, as, uh, as we're sort of bringing up, you know, this this movie has issues of like aging and mortality and like what end of life care might look like is it's sort of immediately brought up by John's fate. And I often think about 
make like putting in my living will like can you have a tv going if i'm in a coma and it looks like i can't <laughs> hear things because i'd like there to be something on i'm always thinking about what what i want in my coma room because i'm fine <laughs> mentally <laughs> that's uh, now i should be thinking about that <laughs> I actually don't. I don't want to be thinking about my mortality anymore. I've done enough of this today. Oh no, I fucking hate it. I didn't see old for a reason. I was like, no, that's yeah. my life is already. I'm always in watching the movie old. I don't need this extra, right? <laughs> Bethy, I, I, yeah, I, I love what you're saying. I think we should all be thinking about whether or not we want a TV running in the event of a coma. But that that conversation of technology makes me think about the very specific choice to have this this strange victorian quality to the home like it feels out of time like they're only playing classical music they themselves are never watching tv or really interacting with contemporary technology like they are beings out of time i thought you were going to bring up thomas the the choice to make vampirism sort of medical and like putting it in the medical model and and like putting it within ideas in the 80s of like bloodborne disease and AIDS and uh but also like advances in anti-aging and telomeres and like all of this like science stuff yeah yeah there's there's Susan Sarandon's line which is basically like aging it is is a disease and, and you can cure it which I think is I think is really cool and weirdly feels to me more like a hook for like a contemporary blockbuster but it's this like very artful tony scott thing um but i i want to talk about one moment in the movie that fills me with deep sadness before we talk about all of the cool shit which Mm -hmm. is just today john waiting in the waiting room for susan sarandon to come back and she says to him not taking seriously the fact that he's aging rapidly like oh i'll see you in 15 minutes whatever brushes him off and in the hours that he's waiting there he loses most of his life he's aged decades in that time and that that kicked me so hard there is such a tragedy to that i think you know the movie's not plot heavy but it is it is very thematically heavy and heavy on a character level Mm -hmm. yeah i also um i what i kind of like about this movie so in old the person who they have this abby lee character who's this model and she's very concerned with her looks and and her rapidly aging looks. I kind of love that they used um, David Bowie and the male character to do that. And you get this gorgeous, you know, sex icon and David Bowie. Is that weird to call him? That? No, that's, I think that's <laughs> I think entirely that's, accurate. And, okay. <laughs> I just like got into my head for a second. Um, but, and, and, and his beauty fading and the scene with Alice the way she's sort of recognizing him, but also like she's like, you have the same eyes. And 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 he's very concerned about how he looks and, and what she thinks of him. And so I thought that I liked that they did it. You know, I think the easy way would be to say, oh, this woman is losing her looks and it's she's very vain. And, and this was like a different read on that. I don't even know if there was I mean, I'm sure there was, you know, that that trope before this movie of like the woman who, who doesn't want to be seen as aging, but I love that they, they, they use the, this gorgeous man to do it. Yeah. To, to link it back to Elizabeth Bathory, as you we were talking about before the hammer movie, Countess Bathory is like all that, like Ingrid yeah. Pitt plays Elizabeth Bathory. Who's like terrified of looking like she is an old woman when she's not bathing in virgin's blood. So like she, she'll just take these like showers right. of blood that make her hot enough again to like, lead the country i guess people don't like pay attention <laughs> you must to her. be hot <laughs> yes we, we all agree only. on that here yeah. yeah yeah also just on a level of like meta and cultural storytelling the idea that david bowie who is like very much at the height of his powers when this movie came out in the mid 80s is lost to these very unpleasant makeup and prosthetics and just sort of disappears from the movie. I'm sure going into The Hunger, people thought they were going to spend a lot of time with gorgeous David Bowie, and you start to lose him pretty quick. You get gorgeous David Bowie for like 10 minutes. But the opening 10 minutes are so good. And the opening (laughs) six minutes, oh my God, unimpeachable, amazing filmmaking. I realize we've left something out. I think there are many people like... 
Bethy or me or Katie in the years between when you thought you saw The Hunger and realized you were kind of <laughs> later seeing it for the first time, who don't know what this movie is about. Do, do either of you feel like you want to take a crack at describing the simple but slightly confusing plot of this movie? You take it, Bethy. Okay. <laughs> so we're first introduced to Miriam and John, played by Catherine Deneuve and David Bowie, who seem to be an immortal vampire couple who, you know, pull together at goth clubs and eat people and shower together and have a really chill life. But then it turns out John is aging. Apparently, Miriam is... 6,000 years old. She's from ancient Egypt, and I don't have time during this recap to get into the white Egyptian thing, but I am pissed. Moving on. It turns out John's vampirism isn't, doesn't like take as well as Miriam's. Like she's the source vampire, and he's sort of like, like one of those birds that cleans the hippo's teeth, essentially, for vampirism. (laughs) (laughs) Or is he like the, 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 the fish on the shark? Yeah. What are the, the, what are those called? They stick onto the shark. I know there are krill on whales. Are they also krill on sharks? I don't think no, so. No, it's like a fish that like suctions on yeah, oh, like a cleaner fish. to the top. Yeah, and it like eats maybe their skin or something. He's a one of those. Yeah. Uh, and it turns <laughs> out that he is going to stay alive forever, but will keep aging and eventually just become sort of this like living mummy guy. And it turns out there's a bunch of living mummy guys and gals in Miriam's attic. Meanwhile, they come across the work of Dr. Susan Sarandon. Who's incredible in this movie, by the way. People always talk about how good Catherine Deneuve is. I think Susan Sarandon fucking rocks in this. She is fearless in this movie. It's incredible. Uh, Fearless and brawless. So... (laughs) Dr. Susan Sarandon is working uh, at this anti-aging clinic. And at first, uh, Catherine Deneuve and David Bowie go to her to try and, like, stop what's happening to John. But that doesn't work out. So Catherine Deneuve's like, well, a hottie is a hottie. Maybe this. Maybe this. So she, um, they have a liaison. It's not entirely clear whether Susan Sarandon knows that she's being turned into a vampire when the blood exchange happens. But Catherine Deneuve is like, I'm going to eat some of you and you're going to eat some of me. And that's going to be very uh, sensual. And Susan Sarandon's like, dope. And it turns out that she is now turning into one of these uh, teeth cleaning bird type vampires that will in- will be young for a very long time. As long as they eat a person every week and sleep for six hours every 24 hours. And uh, Susan Sarandon is like, no dice. She kills one person, her boyfriend, uh, and decides, no thanks, I'm out, and kills herself. And then in the studio tacked on ending, that causes some sort of magic inertia rubber band to snap, so that it uh, causes the... All the mummies in the attic to come devour Miriam, who seems to turn into dust or something. But then it turns out Susan Sarandon is alive. She's got some uh, feeder vampires now and a Miriam in her attic. The cycle continues. I So so while I don't like most... Bethy, first of all, amazing. <laughs> yes. Uh, really, really great job. Uh I, I should clarify that I don't like most of the ending of the movie, but I actually do like the final beats. I think the idea that, like, Sarah is her name? Mm-hmm. Susan Sarandon's character would kind of, like, vengefully lock uh, Miriam in a box as she's locked other people in a box. Like, that, like, kind of works for me, but the, like, brawl with all of the mummies in the middle doesn't really get me going. But you have to wonder, like, okay, so how what how did it end? Like, did it just end with, you know, Miriam falling to her death and rapidly aging? And then they were like, oh, this is super downer-ish. Let's get Susan Sarandon with her new girlfriend and just shoot a couple so- shots. And, and, and it's kind of a happy ending because it's not as tragic as everyone dying. Yeah, from what I understand, it did end with her fall it like the very last part of it was the the realtor being like nobody oh, oh, nobody's okay, here okay, this yeah. place is empty 
Um, but Susan Sarandon specifically did not like the tacked on ending. Like she felt like that those those reshoots that they added on, they added them on for a sequel hook, but nobody oh, fucking liked stupid. the movie. So. <laughs> Oh, no. Um, But she didn't like it because to her, the thing that she wanted to explore was, would you live forever if you were an addict? And she liked the the nobility of Sarah's choice to be like, no, thank you. And Mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. that choice to be taken away from her, she felt like took away that character's like agency and power and like tragic arc. Interesting. Yeah, I I think that's I think that's cool. Uh, can we finally talk about the opening? (laughs) (laughs) We talked about the end, let's talk about the opening. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No matter your feelings on the hunger and its uh, place in culture, the opening six minutes, I think, are just unambiguously incredible. It opens at a Bauhaus show. You've got Miriam and John, the names of the two main characters, uh, (laughs) who are looking for beautiful people to devour. And then suddenly you leave this really cool Bauhaus performance and start intercutting with a really bizarre sound design to their car driving away as they go to have a little sex party. And rather than the sound of Bauhaus carrying over as you're intercutting between this action, it instead changes to this like weird non-diegetic sound, and it's really jarring. You keep coming back into Bela Lugosi's dead, and then suddenly this really weird design, and immediately you're just in the world of Tony Scott, not just visually, but orally. It's disorienting it's so cool i also think you you know like you said like the first six are unambiguously great but i also think it's like that's what people always say about it they're just like oh the opening like that's the 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 thing that that people talk about is is the opening and i almost like re-watching it i was like oh this is actually shorter than i remember like i thought it was much like they were in the club for much longer but it's pretty you know it's two or three minutes but it just sticks with you I think Catherine Deneuve's outfit, the little hat, the sunglasses, like it just sort of sears itself on your brain. And you're just like, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. I've never seen anything cooler than this. And that's, I think, kind of how the hunger sort of exists in my brain. (laughs) Looks fucking cool. And that's the part that is most lifted into American Horror Story season six, because they have... Lady Gaga and Matt Bomer, who everyone agrees are the Catherine Deneuve and David Bowie of their age. <laughs> they go to Senespia and pick up a couple and take them back and eat That's them. That's right. I did watch American Horror Story Hotel, but I like didn't put the connection together <laughs> that it was like a direct hunger ripoff. There's also no, no way it looks as cool. There's just no way. It's not, it doesn't look as, it's still pretty cool. It's still incredibly horny and it's like a full on four way as opposed to like going off into separate rooms to do stuff. So that's innovative at least. It's gotten more pornographic. The thing that I was thinking about last night as I was watching this is like, just like how this functions as a vampire movie. And sometimes vampire movies like really get into like the mechanism of of the vampirism. This is like, just like, I, I feel like they're mostly just like, killing people with the necklaces and then like slashing them there's not a lot of like biting and sucking going on is that what's happening it's really more of a slash and lap yeah. which is definitely a type of <laughs> okay yeah, yeah yeah but it's just interesting because sometimes vampire movies get really into the like and then if you drink my blood, then you are a vampire and you live forever. Or this thing, it's like, this movie doesn't really get into the mechanics of it that much. You just sort of have to like figure it out as it's happening. And I still even was kind of like, why is he aging and she's not? I guess it's because she's the main one and he's like the the feeder one. And But yeah, so I, I, I just think it's interesting, like the way people go about making vampire movies. And I think my favorite types of vampire movies are the ones that latch on to some specific aspect of vampirism and then really sort of focus on that. So this one is all about the aging or not aging part. And so I just love when they kind of, it's like, we're not trying to do too much. We're just going to focus on this, like near dark, which is another one of my favorite vampire movies, like really focuses on like the sun and this it's like, yeah, they're walking around, they're outside, the sun's fine, but let's talk about what does it mean to like not age or to age, like like getting into that aspect of it. That's what I really like about vampire movies when they kind of are very highly focused. But yeah, it's it's interesting when you're like, wait, how is this working? What are they doing? Are we biting? Are we sucking? Are we slashing? So exciting stuff. <laughs> I like 
the the way you characterize that, Katie, and it also made me think something that I really like about the hunger is a lot of times when you have uh, vampires in genre films, their rules are clearly defined both for them and for the audience. And in The Hunger, we don't have a lot of information, but also they don't seem to have a lot of information. It seems like Miriam sort of selfishly is sort of like activating these partners who she knows will eventually go bad. But I don't think she fully understands yeah. why and when it happens, just that there's a threshold that the youth breaks and then it's just a quick rush to being old and decrepit. But like, there is like a, an ambiguity there and, and an uncertainty that I think makes it maybe more strange and frightening. It's almost like like a coming of age thing, but over an incredibly long period of time where like you're grappling with like puberty or like adolescent development when there are a lot of things that are like ill-defined. And like the betrayal that John feels when he starts mm-hmm. aging and he's like, what the fuck? Like I, this is not what you said. I don't understand what's happening to me. And like you lied to me <laughs> or you betrayed me or you didn't convey that this was going to happen. I would I would argue it's a lie by omission. For sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, hey, this is my closet of all the past yous. Right. This That's informed consent to be like, these are everybody that came before you you'll be here for like a like longer than you would be otherwise but like mm, it's up to you right yeah it's such it's such a horrible betrayal and so selfish to like you get yourself over the line because you're like oh this person will have fun for a long time knowing that like the threshold will break and their life will be abject misery for eternity it's really the question that's a bad that's a toxic relationship (laughs) Yeah. Are you here for a good time or a long time is the question of the film. (laughs) It is indeed the question of the film. Um, Also, I mean, like, not to get too into, like, relationship dynamics, but what we see of John and Miriam's relationship is that he is but a humble stable boy and she's, like, some uh, aristocratic French woman. And it's, like, he, he probably didn't even know what he was getting himself into, when she started making out with him in the barn. So <laughs> consent in relationships. To, to your point, Thomas, I would agree that that's something really cool about this movie is that it seems like the vampires don't know how the vampires work. That's something that does happen in other vampire fiction, but it's not as often. More often, I think it is that thing of like, uh, there is a tome that explains all of this. And the vampire hunters also have a copy of the tome. So everybody kind of knows the rule book. Garlic, mirrors, yeah. sunlight. And there's, like, lore about, like, what these vampires were up to in past centuries. You can consult if you meet a guy and you're like, he seems ye olde. <laughs> and then you go consult the tome and you're like, yep, knew it. He's from the 1700s. <laughs> this is catfishing. Um, <laughs> but but I, I think that this movie is more almost, like, existential, kind of, because they don't understand their own existence anymore. Like, you think a, an immortal being would have more of a clue as to how they became an immortal being, but you don't get the sense that she even knows how that happened in the first place. Yeah. Right. And she's almost excited for science to catch up and explain her own existence to her. I think that's a really interesting end of history, 20th century thing to put in the movie as well. Yeah, like it was, you know, folklore and witchcraft for most of her existence. And then suddenly she's like, wait, this woman's doing experiments on monkeys. She's going to tell me what's up. <laughs> <laughs> it's something to do with sleep. <laughs> yeah. And and uh, the monkeys will rip off the other monkeys' faces if they don't get enough sleep. That sounds like <laughs> me. That tracks. <laughs> yeah. Also, you know, sorry to go back to the opening, but the fact that, like, the as their sort of, like, sex vampire party climaxes, it's rapidly intercut with the monkeys ripping each other apart is like, whoa, what, <laughs> what a way to open a movie, man. Uh, Bethy, I feel like something that we've talked about precious little is the relationship between Miriam and Sarah, since this is, in fact, lesbian vamptober. Mm-hmm. Something that I saw one of the first times that I like saw clips of the hunger was in the movie, the celluloid closet because Susan Sarandon is interviewed for that documentary. And she talks about specifically advocating for Sarah's agency in that scene. Like the, the script called for her to be like that Miriam gets her drunk and like tricks her into gay shit. But Susan Sarandon was like, no, there needs to be 
she needs to go into this willingly. She's allowed to, bisexuals are allowed to exist. Uh, I think we should do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I love that she argued for that. I think it also makes it that much more titillating and exciting. And, ex- you know, as a seduction, you they're sort of seducing each other. And I actually think this sex scene is like, like, it's like everything that happens leading up to the sex scene is like way sexier than like what actually happens which is just (laughs) sort of like light like lip brushing (laughs) yeah i do want to talk about the sex scene in conversation with the top gun sex scene (laughs) and how they are both like fake lesbian porn yes and that's what we talked about last time yeah i i feel strongly that a lot of the uh tricks in tony scott's toolbox that he uses in the hunger he brings to top gun like there there is like a similar visual language to that movie um in those more intimate moments um i was watching a youtube video that noted that the bed itself is actually a light table i thought that too like i was like they are totally underlit like when they're lying and i i have to admit i think Catherine deneuve is using a body double the blonde woman who's like face down when um, Susan Sarandon is face up when they're on the light table. I was like, that doesn't, I don't know. Not that I would know what she looks like from the back, but I was like, that has body double vibes to me. I think that's fair. The hair yeah. looked longer. Like, I don't know. I was just like, I, I and it, you know, she's not even showing that much. It's like just her back and like the top of her butt kind of. But I was just like, I don't know. That seems like a place where they could get someone else on in there but yeah it's it's like a very it's like i think the the moment right before they connect is like very charged and erotic and then it kind of is like diminishing returns at least for me i think it's interesting that to know that tony scott was an Anne rice fan because in the vampire chronicles those books the vampire dicks specifically don't work oh like, they cannot get aroused anymore because their blood doesn't move. Ew. <laughs> but they find eating each other, like, drinking each other's blood to be Sexy. as sexual as sex. So, like, in Queen of the Damned, there's there's a, a mutual, like, uh, slash and lap sesh, as we've been describing. <laughs> I really like that term. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I feel like the hunger is characterized by kind of an intuitive slurping energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> you almost made Katie spit out her ranch. And less of like a precise sucking. <laughs> yeah, sorry, Katie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Don't worry, I didn't spit it out. I didn't spit any ranch water on the dog that's at my feet, <laughs> thankfully. Good. Thank God. <laughs> Wait, so it's characterized by slurping? Is that what you said? Yeah, I mean, I just think if you if you think about, like, the larger energy of the hunger, it's not, like, a precise sucking. Like, I think you think of vampires having, like, precision, having two fangs that draw precisely. I think the hunger is not that. It's, uh... It's more free-flowing. It's more... <laughs> it's more naturalistic. It's gushier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's something that David Bowie said that it was, like, sometimes too gory for him. And that is a big difference between, like, this and other movies where there's just, like, that discreet little blood trail to let you know that that sucking is taking place. This is more like, uh, no, there's no, there's no suction inside of a vampire. They just sort of. They just get it out and get after it. They just slurp. I have to say, I mean, this is a little bit of a tangent, but uh, the scene where he, I was just thinking of the blood, the scene where he kills Alice is so horrifying. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty bloody and pretty disturbing. And also the fact that she's so young and it's clearly, I, I mean, I think it's an act of desperation where he thinks maybe killing her will restore his youth and... It's just so devastating, and the the blood squirting in that is also just like really yeah. landing on her sheet music I know. so artfully. It's I, that that to me is the most horrifying scene in the film. That also hit 
harder for me this time than it did the first time. I couldn't believe that was in a studio movie. Like you said, the kid is so young and also you spend so much time with her yeah. and she's just mm-hmm. kind of like the unwitting neighbor who like steals her mom's pills and plays the violin. Like you know too much about her yeah. for her to be killed in such a brutal fashion. Yeah, she really is like a Jodie Foster type, like a Jodie. I was like, this, yeah. Is, yeah. this is the Jodie Foster and Taxi Driver character, especially because I was like, at first you're like, who is this person? Why are they coming over? <laughs> and she's kind of weirdly like got this like jocular relationship with John. I'm like, what the hell? Like this is the <laughs> like, but you know it's the early '80s, so things were different then. She's also packing lewds, so <laughs> that is God. yeah. That's that's a wild dialogue exchange. <laughs> yeah, I'm remembering now the first time that I saw this movie, I started to wonder, like because again the sort of cosmology of these vampires is not explained it almost feels like these vampires aren't feeding on blood they're feeding on life force yeah so that's could be why the slurping and gushing is allowed is because it's really about taking a life to preserve your own and it makes me wonder whether miriam needs she's like a vampire who feeds on other vampires like she has to create a vampire and eat their life in order to keep going and that's why the magical rubber band breaks when her latest life she's trying to take takes itself. That makes sense because I, I have to say the the mechanisms of vampirism in this are were not totally clear to me. And I mean, I think that's by design, but also I was just like, I don't know what's happening <laughs> right now, but um, that makes a lot of sense. And it's also like why they probably were like, yeah, we'll give her violin lessons and keeping these people around. It's sort of like a little stable like, were they planning to turn Alice at some point? The some uh, One review I read suggested that uh, Miriam was grooming Alice to get turned when she was older and John was dead. Like, she was raising one up to make the next, that makes next sense. consort. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's creepy. So, <laughs> so when John is, like, dying over Alice's corpse, she's, like, double fucked. Yeah. And her grief is, like, double because she doesn't have anyone coming up either as well as like losing this other partner and she cared about alice yeah 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 yeah. very sad movie for like (laughs) its reputation being cool 80s you know sexy bauhaus vampire movie like it's so devastating (laughs) it's so devastating i was gonna ask like why we think this movie didn't catch on in the way that like Interview with a Vampire or, or, like, Buffy or, like, any other movies that, like, somewhat sympathetically portray vampires. Why was this one too early to, like, catch that wave? Is it too much of a bummer? Is it too artsy? I think it's, I think it's ultimately just much, much too much of a bummer. This time when I was watching it, I was thinking about that question. And I feel like the movie is oppressively sad and... It, it that doesn't ever really let up. Like, even with the reshot finale and everything, the movie is very bleak and very gentle and artful in a way that I just think is fundamentally uncommercial. I agree with Thomas. Like, I, I think it is too much of a bummer, fundamentally. Um, You know, on my other podcast on Miami Nice, we talk about Miami Vice and, like, maybe why people do or don't connect to it. And, like, that movie is also a very, like, feel-bad movie at the end of it. And I think sometimes people either love that or they don't. But I also, I don't know. I mean, I was watching this. I was like, if I saw a filmmaker today, like a first-time filmmaker come out with this, like, I'd be like, yes, I want to see their next movie. And it's definitely, you know, a lot of, like, a lot of style and energy and um, and not a ton of, like, plot and storytelling. Like, there's, it's very vague in a lot of ways. So I think that maybe sometimes people got a little bit, I I don't know, maybe people just like kind of fell off of it. But the style is so cool. And you can totally tell that that Tony Scott was a commercial director before this because there's such an economy of storytelling, especially in the beginning when he's just like montaging stuff together. And like even as they're, you know, after the the sex party and the monkey screaming attack intercut, um, Mm -hmm. you know, there's even more economy of storytelling where like you just see like, a plastic bag and you assume that's the bodies and then you know we're getting the Susan Sarandon stuff kind of coming in and it's like he doesn't really need to explain a lot or tell you what's going on he's just saying 
here are some images, like put it together yourself. And I appreciate that. Uh, I think that that visual storytelling and that ability to convey something in like as few shots as possible is really interesting. I, I don't know. It might, maybe it was just too vague and artsy, but I also think it's absolute genius to have this kind of monstrous character of, of Miriam who is betraying her lovers left and right and killing people and all this stuff, like be portrayed by someone as iconic and beautiful and, and appealing as Catherine Deneuve. And she just looks so perfect. Like you want to be drawn in by her. I think in a way, like you are kind of seduced by her as a, as an audience member. So you kind of, you understand it. Like you get why all of these people are continuing to fall into this trap with her. And I do feel bad for her. Yes. Too. Like, you know, not excusing, but like I get, I understand her motivations. I never feel like she's a completely inexplicably monstrous person and and yeah and she's an empathetic character you're like you like her and you 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 want to see her you you feel sad when she's sad about losing these people i i agree with all of that and i think that the thing we were talking about earlier with them not totally understanding themselves or like their own vampirism like allows for there to be empathy with that character and that's part of why for me I really like this movie, but I think the third act is almost entirely a whiff. I like the way it looks. I don't really appreciate it on a level of theme or storytelling. And part of it is because she is suddenly kind of cast as and treated as a villain in a way that I don't really Mm -hmm. think she is for the rest of the movie. It just, to me, feels like a, a dumber, more simple version of what is initially kind of a complicated movie. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's like you kind of get lost in what everybody wants and you're so locked in with their desires uh initially that it's like wait like i I, i'm just like what does what does sarah want i like she i don't think that i would have gotten that thing about the not wanting to live as an addict if i if you hadn't explained that bethy like that's not conveyed necessarily to me in in the film but yeah i kind of lose uh my connection to like what everybody's motivations are yeah, my my read on Sarah is just that she's someone who is sort of, like, career-driven to the point of being reckless. Like, she's very passionate about this one project, and she will put herself in harm's way and push herself to the absolute limit if she's going to advance this particular scientific pursuit. Mm-hmm. And also, like, obviously her relationship is clunky. But, yeah, I, I agree that the, the, the addict thing is not something that I necessarily get in the performance or... I guess I just mean, like, what does she want at the, like, in the third act when she's already turned? Yeah. I'm like... I, I didn't I I couldn't really figure out what the motivations were there. Yeah, because she kind of loses a lot of her ability to articulate that because she's right. like so like that's what they're trying like in in different analyses that I've read, they're saying like, you know, she's going through like withdrawals, like she's kicking blood essentially. Which so that's like where you're supposed to get the addiction. Right, and, and the from. part where Willem Dafoe calls her a junkie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the very brief Willem Dafoe performance. He has a baby Willem Dafoe. <laughs> close up. <laughs> You're like what? And then you just sort of keep you move on with your life, right? In in this talking about the third act and what she wants, I know one of the most annoying things you can do when talking about a movie is be like, "Oh, here's how I would end it." But like, I kind of wish the hunger ended in a simple, more contained way, where like. Sarah understands the gravity of the situation, but is still sort of, like, drawn to Miriam, and, like, there is just this sort of, like, tragic weirdness in knowing what her ultimate fate is, but being kind of caught up in, like, the sexual energy of the moment, because clearly that's how this plays out time and time and again, but that's not the movie. Right, like, she knowingly makes the choice because she is drawn into the to the scenario. In the same way that everyone has been before, yeah, like all of the people in boxes in the attic. Mm-hmm. Like, there's just something about Miriam yeah. in her immortality and her allure that is beyond rationality. Yeah. Or even even if she chooses to die instead of carrying on this life, but it doesn't cause a bunch of skeletons to <laughs> jump out and scream, and it's just Miriam being quietly sad, right. would be more in line with the rest of the film. More tonally, you know... Real fucking depressing, like the rest of the film. <laughs> okay, what are we calling the 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 John and the Sarah characters, like the feeder vampires? Like, are they like a tether to the main vampire? Like, they have to exist for the main vampire 
to exist. That's my working theory, but yeah. I have no idea. I haven't read these books. I don't know these bitches. <laughs> <laughs> that was just when I was watching the movie. That's what I was like sort of cobbling together. It's like it seems almost like. She's feeding off them. If in our hypothetical ending, like Sarah chooses to commit suicide and then suddenly Miriam rapidly ages and then she's in this hell of her own making kind of, or, you know, she's, she's suddenly the, become the the thing that she's always trying to avoid. That's kind of tragic and sad and scary. Yeah. Or, and maybe this is like a more broad idea, but she's forced to tether herself to someone she's less attracted to or like less interested in. And then that is like a tragedy unto itself, just being forced to be with someone who sucks for a long time out of desperation. She has to be tethered to that American psycho fucking motherfucker that she picks up in Times Square. Oh, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was like, this guy looks exactly like some American. He's like, obviously some cheesy gigolo, but like. Like, oh, he's American psycho. Some business prick. (laughs) Then she's like, oh, this guy sucks. I hate him. 500 more years with him. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's a movie I would watch. Okay, so we've now workshopped our Hunger remake. (laughs) Starring Lady Gaga and Matt Bomer. (laughs) Bethy directs The Hunger 2. I get The Hunger 3. Katie gets 4, 5, and (laughs) 6. Can't wait. No, I think fun. I should be the one scraping the sides of the barrel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. It's funny. It's I hate I also like I agree with you Thomas. It's like just let the movie be what it is, but you can't resist wanting to to say what about this? Yeah. I yeah. do want to go back a little bit to another reason why this movie maybe didn't connect with audiences is that it is too gay. Like, not not necessarily, like, the lesbianism, because that is shot for, like, a male gazy kind of way that that works for me, because it feels dreamlike in the way that I assume Sarah doesn't quite know what happened to her in that time. Like, it seems like she lost a lot of that time. And I feel like the way that they shoot the scene, that works. But, like, the essence of, like, of being attracted to whoever, of being attracted to, to somebody's vibe more than whatever genitalia they happen to have the i think pretty obvious sort of aids parallels with the way that they do the vampire blood in the movie and also the the idea of like science catching up to your lived experience is also especially in the 80s a very queer experience of like it's only recently that you're out of the dsm you're no longer like a a folkloric monster you're just like a guy (laughs) And that's new. And it's exciting to see what's going to happen next. But then an, a, a, an overwhelming sadness that everyone you've ever loved is dying. That's all. That's 80s gay, baby. No, I think that's a really, really sharp reading. The only thing I will say is, though, is like, this movie was probably shot in 82 because it came out in 83. Like, I don't even know if we were deep enough into the AIDS crisis to, like, know this stuff yet. Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. I know that the the cases were happening and people were dying, yeah, but I'm yeah, not yeah, sure yeah. how common of knowledge it was that it was bloodborne or any of that. It does seem obvious now, but maybe it wasn't then. You're right. And I, I mean, I, but I do think that, like, I, I totally agree with all of your points that, like, I mean, there was definitely panic around this disease that was happening and confusion about it and not knowing how it worked and and I think also the whole idea of like, okay, we're in like the late 20th century and like, can science fix this? And like, how are we gonna, I think that all tracks for me as well. I just don't know how aware they would have been about like how it was transmitted. Mm-hmm. But I also, I don't, I don't totally know. But that like waiting in the doctor's office and aging yes. 50 years. Yeah. And the way that. That's the, right there. Yeah. The way that, that, that the early AIDS crisis was happening especially with um Kaposi's sarcoma and stuff like people getting having their skin be affected and yeah losing a ton of weight and suddenly it's like oh my god I was this hot person and now I I I'm dying of a disease that I don't totally understand at all it's like all of those themes are there yeah it'd be really interesting to like hear Tony Scott or, or well, well, we can't now because he's obviously dead. But, you know, if any, if any of the writers or people who were sort of involved in how this film came to be, like, talked about it. I, I've never listened to – I don't know if there's any commentary. I've never listened to any commentaries or anything. 
yeah, I'm not sure that there is, but I would have to look. But no, this movie fascinates me. I think all of the ways that it's like shaggy and a little weird for me are so much of what makes it fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But also, like, I mean, even Bowie was like so such a gender bending icon. I mean, he lends to the to the queerness of it. Yeah. Just his and- presence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as the guy is the first society's first bisexual. <laughs> he invented it. Hats off. <laughs> yes. I I feel like we've done some good work tonight, despite my internet cutting out repeatedly. <laughs> I, f- I, I have a much better understanding of this movie now and appreciation for it, having discussed it with y'all. I had a great time. This was awesome. Lesbian Vamtober's off to a great start. <laughs> Thank Absolutely. you for- Absolutely. Katie, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, if, if people want to find you online, where can they do that? People can find me on Twitter at Katie Walsh STX. And that's and and my, that's also my my letterboxed handle if you choose to follow me on letterboxed and those are the only places you should follow me. And it's Katie Walsh STX because you're a big fan of STX Studios yes. and the Free State of Jones. <laughs> yes. Um, no, STX is the airport code for Saint Croix, which is where I'm from, Saint Croix in the U.S. Virgin Islands, and um, that's just like everybody calls it STX as like a. You know, my dad's email is STX Walsh. My, all of us are STX something. So people think that it's like for Texas, but I'm not from Texas. I'm St. Croix. Yeah, it's cool. When I, when I hear STX, I think extreme sports, but this is a context that I needed. So, um, <laughs> yes, I love, uh, the, the lacrosse brand. I think it's a lacrosse brand. <laughs> STX. <laughs> Super passionate about it. This is going to come out days after the episode of Miami Nice that I'm on drops. So if you want to hear another podcast that Katie and I are on together where we're talking about Michael Mann. That's going to be super fun. That. Hell yeah. Bethy. Mm-hmm. You're always cutting it up online in a huge way. Where where can people find that? Uh, I'm at Bethy BSQU on Twitter and Bethy Squires on Instagram I think I might be Violence Gang on Letterboxd. I'm not sure. But because this is uh, the spookiest time of the year, um, I know I'm going to be trying to watch, and watch something spooky every day. So if you really want to like keep up with all of the ghouls and goblins that the crew is getting into, um, we're going to be posting a lot on the Instagram about the scary movies and TV shows that we be watching. Don't miss it. And if I haven't annoyed you to your wits end, you can follow me on Twitter, uh, where Katie says I'm a scamp. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This branding is taking hold, whether you like it or not. (laughs) It is taking hold. I got an email from my new boss last night welcoming uh, film Twitter scamp to the company. So Katie is is influencing people left and right. I'm sorry, Thomas. No, I think it's I think it's funny and clearly apt. Um, <laughs> all right, what's our really spooky sign off this week? Oh gosh, I I am caught off guard. I'll I'll say uh, <laughs> if you want to follow the Twitter and uh, Instagram for the show, it's Movie Bar Pod on Twitter and Movie Bar underscore Pod on Instagram. Yeah, sorry, I whiffed that, Bethy. I left you hanging. No, I forgot. You know. It's we're all going through so much. I'm rapidly aging. <laughs> Me too. It's, it's rough out there. We're all just like super depressed about <laughs> vampires betraying each other <laughs> and uh rapidly aging. Yeah. And as always, our our classic sign off, get your living will in order cuz you never know when it's coming for you. Get the TVs on for the comas. Get them on. Happy October. <laughs> Watching Movies at the Bar is edited by Colin Jenkins, with show art by Lindsay Farrell, and that theme you hear at the top, that's Quentin Mulligan. 